Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of The Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Today I am thrilled to be sharing with you this conversation I had with Canadian registered dietitian Noreen Hunani, director of RDs for Neurodiversity. As a neurodivergent dietitian herself, Noreen has made huge inroads in supporting us, other dietitians, to understand more about neurodivergence and how we can provide services that meet the needs of our neurodivergent clients. And importantly, many dietitians and health professionals are also neurodivergent. And Noreen is just doing an incredible job of speaking up and speaking out in ways which have really served to destigmatize the ways different brains show up in the world, including ours. So I wanted to tell you a bit about Noreen. So I've already mentioned that uh, Noreen is neurodivergent herself and a registered dietitian, and she has over 15 years of experience. In her private practice, she treats children and families struggling with various feeding challenges through a trauma-informed and anti-oppressive lens. She's particularly interested in the intersection of neurodivergence and feeding differences. Noreen is founder of RDs for Neurodiversity, an online education platform for registered dietitians and helping professionals. She's had the privilege of sharing her knowledge and expertise at multiple national and international conferences. She's passionate about supporting pro-justice, health at every size aligned professionals who are striving to build liberatory practices. I really appreciate this conversation with Noreen and uh, in particular what you'll hear Noreen speak about is ways in which we can hold space for our own experiences as well as those of our neurodivergent clients. Just remembering that neurodivergence shows up in so many different ways and as she really points out here there is no one way to uh, to be a dietitian uh, when it comes to kind of the food and eating related and body challenges challenges that a lot of neurodivergent folks may be experiencing. So I, I really appreciate um, all the work that Noreen brings into the world. And you can follow her on RDs for Neurodiversity, that is on Instagram. And then also her website is rdsforneurodiversity.com. What you'll notice is also Noreen uh, does supervision. She does supervision groups with another one of our podcast guests, Grace, Grace Wong. And uh, she also does some uh, formal education and courses for dietitians and helping professionals. So head on, head on over to Noreen's website, RDs for Neurodiversity, and then you'll find all of the goodness over there. So yeah, take a listen, take a look and find out more about neurodivergence and, uh, and what we can all learn. 
So if you're looking to find out more from The Mindful Dietitian, which is my own platform and business, then you can find out more uh, via Instagram, which is at The Mindful Dietitian or via the website, themindfuldietitian.com.au. So we've had some recent courses just being released into the world, a new version of the Eating Disorders for Dietitians, which is uh, inclusive and trauma-informed. We've got some guest speakers that are going to be uh, presenting the live portions of the course, which is really exciting and a wonderful opportunity for dietitians from all over the world to hear from some very, very wise and experienced diet Australian dietitians. So um, our accents, yes, are special in so many ways. So if you want to um, check that out, you can find out more about uh, th that training uh, and those workshops and that course. Uh, via the uh, via the tab at themindfuldietitian.com.au. Tracy Brown and I are also going to be hosting an upcoming live uh, tr training session, I guess, and support and um, an information session uh, as part of our trauma-informed dietetic care course coming up in a couple of weeks at the end of February. Um, and the rest of the course is evergreen. So if you're interested in everything nervous system, if you want to geek out with us on, uh, on everything to do with uh, neurobiology, then please join us in the uh, trauma-informed dietetic care course, which is it's all within a dietitian's scope of practice. We, we really want to support you within safe and ethical care. So if you're interested in that course, then again, over to the website. So thank you so much for being here. I hope you really enjoy this conversation with my wonderful colleague, Noreen Hunani. Hello, Noreen. What a pleasure it is to have you on the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So you and I have come to know each other a little bit more in recent years with our intersecting interests in mostly eating disorders and um, and also trauma-informed care. So I'm really keen to be talking to you about all kinds of things, probably, you know, ducking and weaving in and out of those kind of topics as well. But I'm really interested, uh, if you don't mind, maybe sharing with the people listening a little bit about you. you know, so, for example, what does a, a week in the life of Noreen look like? Like these days yes absolutely so work-wise um i typically you know see my private clients and my private practice i also support um, dietitians and offer consultations and supervision i'm actually just wrapping up a group supervision um, session and um, i also love to teach um, so i'm either developing courses or workshops or delivering courses and you know it's it sounds like a lot, a lot of different things, right? But um, I realized over the years that this is how my brain functions best. I am the kind of person who needs a lot more stimulation to, to be happy and regulated. And so, um, you know, since I graduated, uh, which was like almost 15, 16 years ago, um, you know, I never held on to um, one position, like a nine to five, doing the same position. I've been working this way and working on multiple projects and, and tackling all kinds of different projects all at once because I feel that works, works best for me. 
What a beautiful reflection to have that, you know, what, what a good match for you is to be working across multiple domains and really kind of challenging yourself in, in, in lots of ways that is not the typical nine to five, you know, clinical job as a dietitian. Not that that's kind of typical anymore, but mm. um, what, a, what a wonderful reflection. So did you reach this point at some time in your career where you realize that, oh, actually, a lot of different things actually nourishes me rather than overwhelms me? Yeah, no, I think this is something that like I knew right from the beginning. I didn't really know exactly why. I know now that it has to do with, with my neurodivergence and, um, you know, that boredom that kicks in with a nine to five for someone, you know, who does identify as an ADHD or is very real. And so for that, um, from the very beginning, I've worked this way. So I would say no to the nine to five, you know, full uh, week positions. And I would just grab like two or three part-time positions and work at very different places. So um, this is something I've known that, but now I actually understand the reason behind it. <laughs> That's so powerful for people, isn't it? Whether, you know, we are health professionals ourselves or our clients, people who we're working with is understanding the way our own brain works is such a powerful tool to support us in, in meaningful life and work as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing your lived experience. It's just incredibly powerful. So speaking of, you have become a really strong and important voice on the topic of neurodivergence. So I'm hoping it's okay if we start off with maybe some foundational concepts and ideas. And of course, feel free to draw on your own personal experience, your own um, expertise as, as somebody who, who lives as an ADHD, -er, as, you, as you said. Um, so what are some of the most important um, aspects or, or ideas around around language that you think that dietitians and health professionals and, and everybody could um, maybe we could do a little better with understanding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you know I think it's important to to understand that the language is relatively new when it comes to neurodiversity. Mm. So the term neurodiversity was coined um, in the late 90s um, by an Australian um, sociologist named Judy Singer. <laughs> and uh, um, basically neurodiversity refers to the entire spectrum of human neurology and capability. It's different from the neurodiversity movement in that ne the neurodiversity is uh, not a social uh, justice or a movement per se, but it's an established fact. Like, there's diversity in size, there's diversity in brains, you know, um, all of that beautiful, wonderful <laughs> stuff, right? So from the neurodiversity paradigm, we understand that all brains are born equal. So neuro neurodiversity is all brains are, are different, but the neurodiversity paradigm and, and the movement is about treating all brains equally, right? So society mm -hmm. should not privilege one kind of neurology over another. And neurodivergence <laughs> refers to any condition that causes a person to have a differently working mind. So whether the condition is caused by genetics, um, uh, acquired, uh, you know, or by experiencing trauma. Um, and so that umbrella is really, really vast, right? So it's really big. Um, 
autism um, is under that umbrella, ADHD, dyslexia, uh, those are actually all my identity. So I consider myself to be a multiply neurodivergent person. Um, and um, if we think about acquired neurodivergence, so for someone who, let's say, has a lot of autoimmune conditions um, and experiences a lot of brain fog, well, brain fog mm -hmm. is a form of neurodivergence as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, TBIs, stroke, Alzheimer's, right? And neurodivergent is basically a person who has the neurodivergence, like the, the condition that makes the person neurodivergent. So yeah, lots, and the language is still developing, you know, I mean, uh, it's relatively new and, um, and, and, and we're, we're, we're all learning, we're all learning. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you stepping us through some of the, um, some of the differences and overlapping uh, features that you, you know, that you mentioned and how we can maybe for those of us who've been working in, say, body size diversity spaces and have been, mm -hmm. you know, advocates for diversity in weight, shape and size, um, mm -hmm. that this is a really nice way that we can draw upon our existing experiences and, you know, draw a parallel to that. I feel like maybe that is a really nice open door for for, for folks, particularly for dietitians and other health professionals who are, for example, health at every size advocates, um, who are weight inclusive advocates. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's not a massive leap, is it? It's, it's, it's another step. Exactly. That's how I view it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much. So um, for, for a lot of dietitians in particular and health professionals and community members really a lot of these conversations as you say are quite new to us and i think you know my my observation both from my personal experience and also from uh, you know working quite actively in the dietetic space is that when things are new i think we we can feel a little bit activated you know by the newness of things and and we can feel perhaps a, an urge to be a little bit um, perfectionistic or a little bit performative or maybe a lot of those two things as well um you know in that yearning for, for for knowledge and for learning and not wanting to mess it up and not wanting to get it wrong can often kind of get in the way of us of really engaging with new and emerging ideas with an open mind and an open heart and a, a willingness to kind of you know be there if or when not if when we we trip over something which um you know a, a learning opportunity i suppose so um as we're as we're kind of all learning together, um, one one question um, I have is, you know, so for dietitians, when we are working with folks um, who are neurodivergent, um, what are ways that often food, eating, our capacity to nourish ourselves, how does neurodivergence impact people's capacity around food eating and their body? Yeah. <clears throat> I love that question. And, you know, before, before I answer that question, I just want to, um, you know, express that um, we have to be so careful about not generalizing. Yes. Right? So I think that that's one thing I do see a lot, you know, um, with, with fellow colleagues um, is, 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 is like that, you know, feeding into those stereotypes, right? So for example, if we look at people that are autistic, right, we do know that 
you know, quite a few of them do have eating, you know, food-related challenges because of um, sensory processing differences, right? Um, I come from a family um, of neurodivergent folks, and I have, um, you know, some uncles who totally would meet the criteria for, for ARFID. Mm -hmm. And then I have a few other neurodivergent family members that are chefs and cooks because they are able to pick up all these flavors and, and you know, in recipes and um, that others can't, right? Mm. So um, I think it's really important to understand that like we don't want to necessarily generalize, right? That all autistics or all ADHDers, you know, have these kind of challenges. However, there are patterns that I do see in my practice. And because, you know, I specialize in feeding, I'm seeing a lot of those autistic <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> children and adults that do have these feeding challenges. So that's one thing that does, you know, show up because in general, you know, generally speaking, there is, you know, a lot of sense, like most neurodivergent people are sensitive. That is something that's a known mm -hmm. fact, right? We know that. Um, and that can impact eating, especially when there are sensory processing differences. So texture aversions, um, you know, feeding differences that we can detect right, you know, really from, from childhood, right? Mm -hmm. From earlier on. Um, interoception and interoceptive awareness um, can be impacted too. And, and again, you know, it's not just related to hunger and fullness, but also emotional regulation, right? So when we feel, let's say, emotions very strongly, right? Um, it can become more difficult to tap into hunger and fullness, right? When you're constantly feeling a lot of emotions and are maybe even overwhelmed, right? Um, so I do see these, um, you know, these type of, of challenges. Uh, the sensory processing differences, the eating experience in general can be quite different. Um, how people interact with food can be very different. Mm. So a lot of my neurodivergent, especially autistic clients prefer to eat um, with their hands instead yeah. of the utensils. Uh, the motor challenges sometimes can impact, you know, um, how we use utensils, but also just being able to eat with hands from what I, you know, hear from a lot of clients is it's just much more pleasurable, right? Um, and, you know, when we look at the social aspect of eating, right, which we talk a lot about, like eating is social, and um, it's not a very pleasurable <laughs> aspect for a lot of neurodivergent people, you know, who would, who would prefer not to eat in big social settings because of those social demands that are placed um, and the um, sensory overload that can come, you know, from being in like a loud restaurant or at a bar or... So a lot of these things, you know, impact um, our relationship with food as well, right? Um, and um, if we think about executive functioning skills, right, that impacts how we plan our meals, uh, forgetfulness, uh, distractibility, all of that impacts, you know, our ability to nourish our, our bodies. So, you know, when we look at, like, the food, the eating experience, we know it's very different. Um, when it comes to also, like, 
bodies, our bodies and how we relate to our bodies, that can be a very different experience too, right? So when we think about more the traditional body image, you know, work, there is a reason why it doesn't work for neurodivergent people, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're not looking at all of the underlying challenges that neurodivergent people face when it comes to living in a body um, um, and living in, living in a world where their bodies are constantly, you know, violated, mm-hmm. right? Um, so a quick example, you know, that would be stimming. I don't know if you're familiar with, mm-hmm. you know, that movement, that repetitive movement, right? That um, it's a movement that brings a lot of regulation. It's self-soothing. It's, 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 it's beautiful and wonderful, but it is so pathologized that there are programs and behavioral therapies that are used to basically extinguish these behaviors, mm. right? Mm. So, well, how, how, you know, what kind of impact does that have on your body, right? Mm. How you relate to your body, how you show up in the world, um, you know, and how sometimes taking up space is actually not safe. Mm. yeah that's extremely powerful and reminds me of all the ways that um that our various soothing strategies particularly on the background of uh, food eating and body and relational trauma as well tapping anything rhythmical daydreaming you know which is a form of float you know of just you know disconnecting from the world even if it's just for a few seconds how so many of the and as you say stimming as well um has been labeled as something to be extinguished something not to Mm do and you know when we zoom out i'm so curious noreen if it feels okay to kind of help us contextualize this um in the form uh, in you know in in the context of our culture which demands of us to be performing in a particularly in a particular way and um uh, maybe through the lens of white supremacy of um you know healthism it's it really finds itself um traumatizing neurodivergent people in ways that I think we're only just beginning beginning to understand now, um, you know. But this has been, as you say, you know, your uncles now with Alfred, um, you know, that wasn't named back then, was it? You know, and it nope. would have been they were. I don't know just what they considered. Were, you know, fussy or something, fussy or, or something. strange. Like they were just considered strange, especially since we had a few members of the family that were chefs and you know enjoyed right. cooking, so they never really understood that experience of just wanting to eat like canned chickpeas all day, you know? Um, But, you know, a lot of this, you know, it it does stem from white supremacy and ableism, right? Um, And, you know, the fact that anyone who's different, right, um, is considered wrong and Mm -hmm. bad, right? Um, And what happens is that living in a society Um, that is so oppressive leads to a lot of masking and so masking Mm. basically you know what that means is you're hiding your traits right so someone let's say who does stem or eat a certain way so I see a lot of ARFID 
you know, clients who um, eat a certain way, but their, their food choices are um, considered strange. And so they would rather just show up and say they're not hungry, mm. right, and hide their needs um, than show up um, and order, you know, a meal from the kids menu, right? Um, so I think that it, the interesting thing, you know, is that all of these challenges that we see, they've always existed, yes. right? But now there is a paradigm shift, right? So all of the information that we were getting was from textbooks written, you know, by cis white men, right? And I think that social media has been so powerful for neurodivergent people because it really allowed them to connect and find their communities. And a lot of this dialogue now is originating, it's starting from, you know, neurodivergent people, like, you know, thinking yes. about Judy Singer, who's, who's neurodivergent, right? So I think that there is this, there's this shift that's happening, which is so wonderful and, and so beautiful to, to see. Um, and it's, it's so needed. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that because I was attending like a mini conference last week. Um, it was a, an eating disorders um, research based conference and there was some different streams. And um, one of my wonderful colleagues um, was speaking about eating disorders in um, sexual minority uh, women. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, um, she they did a, a really wonderful job and made a really important point that um, in queer spaces, for example, for example, in queer mental health, there's a lot of folks who are experts by experience um, who are, are queer and and name their own mental health experiences um, and are involved as practitioners, as researchers. Um, and, it, and from what you've said now, it seems, and, and my observations, is there are a lot of neurodivergent people in the neurodivergent space as well as clinicians, as researchers and are emerging and are really leading the way. And my colleague's point was, oh, it's really interesting in eating disorders how we um, don't uh, we don't always see a lot of people with lived experience or particularly intersecting lived experiences and and um and and, and she was saying that um you know this is a this is a real problem it's something that we've really got to um get on yeah. top of so um so i really appreciate you sharing um and making that really clear that you know a lot of the people leading the way are actually neurodivergent themselves mm -hmm. um and that that is such a powerful shift in in how we name a leadership, I guess, and and um, you know the the powerful nature of of um, expertise by lived experience. It's absolutely incredible. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you and I, Noreen, are both trauma informed practitioners. So um, I'm interested to hear a, a little bit more from you about the intersection of trauma and neurodivergence, particularly in the context of family feeding. So I did notice that um, just today you put up this amazing post on Instagram, which I'll share the link to it in the, in the podcast notes. And, and what you did so beautifully is um, outline the, um, is outline the uh, kind of the 
uh, primary responses we have when we're feeling under threat or in danger. So those kind of autonomic nervous system responses that, that we feel. Um, so before we kind of get into that, I guess, you know, just emphasizing that um, trauma is not what happened. It's, it's, it's what happens as in our bodies as a result of an event or series events which may be ongoing as well including marginalization and feeling a lack of belonging which you've already mentioned a lot of neurodivergent people um, do experience often so with that in mind um, let's have let's dig into you know the kind of the, the trauma responses or the nervous system related responses that a lot of neurodivergent people can have and how this might show up particularly in um, in kind of food and feeding situations mm -hmm. yeah so I guess that you know one one like a pattern that I see a lot right when it comes to the food related trauma and the trauma that we see um, in, uh, in neurodivergent people, it, it really, it starts from in, in, during childhood. Yeah. And so what's ha what happens often is that the eating experience is different. And then you have a caregiver who does not have the same eating experience, right? So because the child has a very different eating experience, and often it is a very aversive eating experience um, because the needs are not met, whether it's, you know, related to like the sensory, um, you know, uh, aspect of food or maybe the environment or maybe the demands, maybe we're asking too much in what we're serving, maybe don't match the, the skill set of the child. So what ends up happening is that there are a lot of these behaviors that show up, right? Mm. And that's what I was I I, I mentioned um, in the post. These behaviors, so um, meltdowns, and the child really resisting, and then the parent really pressuring, and um, and so it just becomes really, really, um, you know, the whole situation becomes very, very stressful because. Um, the parent is not able to respond to the child's needs in a way that is neurodiversity affirming. And so, as you know, the trauma happens because the child has no space to process this, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is that disconnect, right? So when parents are informed and they understand, right, the child has a space to process, there is more validation and understanding and connection. So those external resources, right, that are needed to process the trauma and to process all of this um, is so, so helpful and beneficial. And that's why I feel like we have to really start screening for feeding differences um, and dietitians should be trained and how to screen for these, you know, um, feeding differences that show up because they do show before the diagnosis. Ooh, interesting. Do you mind if we pause there? Because I'm super keen to hear more. What do, what might screening look like? So often, it, you know, a lot of these, you know, behaviors that we see are selecting select, selective eating behaviors, um, you know, children sometimes who might require um, distraction, right? Mm. And that distraction could be a form of um, self-regulation. So like screens, for example, um, can help um, tune out all the extra, you know, external um, sensory stuff that's happening in the environment. Um, and um, 
unable to eat different textures, let's say texture versions, um, the child's gagging a lot, you know, a lot of these type of skills, um, the, these, these uh, behaviors show up. And if there is a lot of stress, uh, we see the, the meltdowns and, and how difficult feeding can become for the, you know, for the entire family, really. Um, and so I think we have to really, you know, look at, well, what, what, um, you know, what, what is typically expected? And I don't really love looking at feeding that way, but I think that we have to have, you know, mm. something, right? Okay, this is what we typically see at 12 months. This is what we typically see, you know, at six months, you know, if a child is two years old, like what do we typically see? And if they're really unable to eat like the rest of the family, well, we need to dig deeper and not just talk about, you know, Fancy, fancy feeding or, strategies, yeah, 20, yeah, exactly. do it 20 or, times, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That, like that, that doesn't work. That, that does yeah. not work, right? Um, and so then that's when we have to work on the acceptance piece, really, um, and really understand what's the, the most responsive way to feed this child, even for exposures. Like what's the, you know, the most responsive way? Because, you know, exposures at the end of a school day when the child is like really, you know, in fight or flight all day, they come home. One of the first things they do is they have a meltdown and that, that release. Um, and that's not the time to be like cooking and baking, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, these things are really, really important. Um, and we have to, you know, assess for this. Um, also asking questions about the parents, because often I will get parents that also identify as selective eaters. Um, and to me, that's a big, you know, sign. <laughs> okay, well, we need mm -hmm. to dig deeper, right? And really um, be more realistic. And as you say, um, you know, uh, noticing, observing and tracking uh, young children's feeding over time often happens before a diagnosis. I'm not yeah. sure how it is in Canada, but to the best of my knowledge in Australia, they tend not to um, diagnose until maybe five or so. What is it in Canada? Well, if there's no, um, for, for ADHD, yeah, that's, it's about five years old, but for autism, it can be diagnosed um, at, a, at an early age, even younger. Yeah. So two years or, you know, depending on what's going How on. How it shows up. Developmentally, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think probably also, um, you know, given if there's a family history um, there that, you know, pediatricians and GPs and so forth are probably going to be a little bit more um, on top of things. Yeah, if there's mm -hmm. multiple, um, if there's parents or multiple siblings mm -hmm. in a family. So, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, I just want to mention right there, uh, I'm not the expert on on, how, on autism diagnosis. So when I said five, um, I actually wouldn't actually that, that that's only through uh you know friends friends kids actually mm -hmm. um not that i actually know um i'm i'm actually really interested mm -hmm. to ask a little bit more about you know what what we know about the uh about the dominant autonomic nervous system responses of fight and flight being more sympathetic and then the freeze um, and the fawn or please side of things being more parasympathetically dominant. Um, you know, what, what might this look like in, in children with some feeding differences? You know, so the fight or flight. Um, yeah, do you know what? I'm just going to hand over to you. What, what would you notice in these dominant nervous system responses when it comes to, mm -hmm. you know, food and eating experiences? Yeah. 
So definitely, you know, the, the, the fight response often we will see um, children are very, you know, um, agitated. Um, there might be, um, you know, massive um, meltdowns mm. um, and um, it just becomes really, really difficult to even, you know, sit down and, and, and have a meal together. They might push food away, right? So if children are, are pushing their plates, you know that, well, that's, that they're, they're not in a, in, a, in a regulated state and eating becomes very difficult. Um, flight response often, you know, I will see children that will go hide under the table right especially and they'll some will even cover their ears right mm -hmm. so that's a really big sign that there is also often it's these responses much, are related to a sensory overload yeah. um as well right so it's too much um and again you know there 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 is there is avoidance um even joining the family becomes really difficult um in some cases you know um I've recommended, okay, well, if they can't come because they've had really bad experiences, we can put like a little kitty table right next to the dining table, and then maybe we can start there. So I think we have to be very, very um, open-minded and challenge a lot of what we've learned too as dietitians, because a lot of the feeding frameworks are quite ableist in what we've learned, you know, and it's really hard for us too, because often we just want to fix things right like that that kicks in like the writing reflex like okay how do we fix this and I know you posted about that <laughs> but um but it's so important to to really look at the full picture and see what's going on and what's the best you know what would be the best um approach and mm. looks so different for different families right um, and then um, the fawn, um, you know, response, it's so, it's so interesting because often that is praised, right? Yes. So it's like the people pleasing type of behavior, like, look, mommy, look, I finished. I hear this a lot. Oh, look, like she'll always show me that she finished, you know, her veggies or she will always come. And then we have a big party and celebration and, and I know the child's not enjoying vegetables. It's not, you know, you look at their, their body language and what they're telling us. Um, you know, some children are even gagging and they'll still say, oh, it's delicious. And it's just so heartbreaking mm -hmm. to see, you know, how much children want to please their caregivers, right? Of course, because that and is a safety mechanism as well. Exactly, exactly, right? But that does not allow them to develop a healthy relationship with food. And, you know, long term, it does not expand their diet, like it doesn't help with variety whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing is that, you know, children that are neurodivergent um, are, are, are particularly, you know, susceptible in, to this type of behavior because a lot of these behavioral based therapies are compliance based. Mm. So they're you know from a very young age they they learn to do things to please therapists the or the adults or the caregivers so a lot of these behavioral based therapies which we know now um you know can even be traumatic for 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 children um is compliance based right so there's no bodily autonomy there really you know there's no um you know you're really um you're 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 performing to to please the adult right and then that shows up also um 
during meal times as well. So what you're really speaking to here is having our lens both in the short term kind of skill building and then also long term as well that, you know, a quote unquote compliant child might um, lead a parent to be more calm and enthusiastic uh, in the moment. But having that long game in mind in terms of uh, in terms of what kind of relationship am I wanting my mm. the young person in my life or the child in my life to have mm. not only with food and eating, but then also other people as well, you know, because okay. you and I are both very aware in our age group that, you know, um, that consent is not a conversation that we were privy to as children or as teenagers or even as young adults. Mm -hmm. So I'm making assumptions here, but um, mm -hmm. th these are conversations that are being had a lot by children mm -hmm. now um, and that our age group as parents um, mm -hmm. would need to be introduced to what does consent in feeding uh, look yeah. like, sound like, feel like as mm -hmm. both the person kind of doing the feeding, so to speak, and also being the recipient of the food and the person doing the task or the job of eating the food. Yeah. And how does this set up the young people in our lives to be able to set boundaries, to be able to say no, to be able to mm -hmm. say yes, and to be able to have that body autonomy that you're speaking about where we can really take care of ourselves from a place of deep acceptance of our differences and from and our, and our diversity and live well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because when it comes to the disability community, this is a very, very like huge like problem that I see when it comes to consent because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of therapies use um, techniques like hand over hand, right? Um, and that to me is, is, is teaching the child right from the beginning that you don't really have personal space, like that does not exist for you, right? So, um, you know, I, we talk a lot about consent and feeding, but if the child isn't participating in other types of therapies where there is no consent, right, I feel that it is very difficult to, 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 um, to develop a healthy relationship with food and, 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 um, and, and our bodies, um, you know, when you're getting these mixed messages from, from everywhere. And I suppose in our, in our, you know, our, our dietetics course and, and further training, um, you know, the first high quality training that I saw, which really was very, very trauma informed, led really leading with um, a high consent process was, of course, the, the Arford course that EDRD Pro ran, of which you were a speaker. I really, really enjoyed that course. And that was, I find it, you know, over 20 years into my career, kind of stunning that that was the first kind of family feeding or, or, or you know, food related course that I was like, oh, this is, this is the dominant par paradigm here. You could see it woven all throughout the course and hadn't really seen that before. Um, now I know that you have developed some courses, um, which I'm so excited about and, and thank you so much for bringing your expertise into that space. So do you mind telling us a little bit more about 
the courses that you have developed and where people can find them because um, I have no doubt at all that um, <laughs> this will, will hopefully, you know, um, garner some interest in this really incredibly, um, uh, you know, emerging space for dietitians. Mm -hmm, yes. So um, I'm going to be teaching a course in January um, and it's going to focus on inclusive approaches um, supporting neurodivergent children um, with feeding difficulties. So um, the first two modules actually focus on the neurodiversity paradigm, disability rights. I think that's really, really important because I feel like that is where the disconnect is. I think really understanding what neurodiversity is all about and acceptance, um, you know, based um, therapy and treatment, like what does that really look like uh, when it comes to feeding challenges? Um, I'm also actually in the process of, of um, uh, developing a peer-led um, support group for neurodivergent providers, which I'm super excited about yeah. because um, I know that it's not safe to be openly neurodivergent uh, for a lot of professionals. Mm -hmm. um, and quite a few uh, people have reached out and are looking for support. So this is going to be a low cost, um, you know, support group peer led for um, anyone who identifies um, as neurodivergent with or without a diagnosis, um, because self-diagnosis is as valid. Um, so those are the two big projects that I'm currently working on. Yeah. Uh, that's so exciting. Well done. And thank you so much. So uh, is there a, a website or a link that I, I will put all of these in the show notes, of course, uh, mm -hmm. but is there somewhere where people can find out a little bit more? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, the website RDs for Neurodiversity has all the info. I'm also on um, social media, Instagram and Facebook. Um, and the handle is RDs for Neurodiversity. Yay. Noreen, just an enormous thank you for bringing so much of yourself into not only our conversation, but also our community and into the world too. Um, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but you really do make a difference. And speaking uh, so openly, not only about your own expertise, your own lived experience expertise, but then also really so generously sharing um, information and opportunities to learn and to grow in this space will only make our profession stronger. And then the flow on effect hopefully will be to equip um, parents and families with the skills to be able to raise their neurodivergent kids as feeling whole and feeling good mm -hmm. enough and being able to live really, really well. So just thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, wonderful. So I'll put all the links to, um, to Noreen's information in the show notes. You can follow her on dietitians, for neurodiversity, RDs, beg your pardon, RDs for neurodiversity across all the platforms. And um, as somebody who has got to know Noreen's work over a number of years now, I highly, highly recommend Noreen as a supervisor, as an educator and teacher, and as a peer as well. So thank you so much, Noreen. Thank you. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. 
Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you.